thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a privilege to share the Word of God with the saints of Durban Memorial Baptist Church. Now, this morning, we practice the church ordinance of the Lord's Supper. I want to do something in just a moment that is different, and we'll talk about it uh, as we go on throughout the service. But I'm going to ask the guys that I spoke to a moment ago, if you would come forward and everyone else bear with us for a moment. Man, that was awkward. It's okay to laugh. I was recently talking to someone about foot washing ceremonies. And he said he's never participated in one, never seen one. He said, I'm not really a big feet guy. Well, to be honest, I'm not either. (laughs) So why would we do that this morning? I I, want to talk about that. But first, I'm going to read to you John chapter 13. Verses 5 through 17. This won't be our main exposition, but I do want to go through this this morning. John chapter 13, verses 5 through 17. Then he, talking about Jesus, then he, 
poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, why do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew, he, uh, he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put out in their outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So think about this with me. In this section of scripture, John 13, the one to whom, through whom, and for whom all of creation was made, humbles himself before his followers and washes their feet. Now, the passage deserves a longer exposition or explanation than I'm going to give it this morning. We'll hopefully come to that at some point in the future. But I want us all to know the significance that Christ the King, Jesus Christ, is stooping to wash the feet of his disciples. Because of the sandals that they wore and the, the, the dusty conditions of the region that they were in, washing of the feet was a necessary and regular part of everyday life when you come into a home. But foot washing was reserved for the lowliest of menial servants. Even peers, people on the same like social level as one another, didn't wash one another's feet except in very rare cases where they wanted to emphasize a, a great love or admiration. So in this section of scripture in John 13, Jesus's actions are symbolic of a spiritual washing, of a spiritual cleansing, and thus leading to a greater truth about spirits uh, than simply washing. But it's a model of Christian humility as well. It's not only pointing to a greater truth of how Jesus washes us white as snow, but it is a model of Christian humility. In, in the washing of feet, Jesus is showcasing a selfless service ultimately expressed on the cross. Now, throughout history, churches, many church groups, have practiced foot washing as a regular ordinance. Some of y'all may have gone to churches that regularly practice foot washing now, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it is inherently wrong to do it. I, I do not believe that it is a regular ordinance of the church. We've gone through our, our beliefs recently in our new members class. We've said there are two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So why do I say this in, in light of the text that we just read? Well, for a few reasons. First of all, Foot washing is never uh, instructed in any of the epistles. It's not given in the church manuals, so to speak, uh, uh, to uh, the, the, uh, uh, the letters of the epistles written to the churches there, uh, the letters of the apostles written to the churches, excuse me. Nor is it depicted as an ordinance in the early church gathering literature that we have from historical documents. But further, 
While humility is highlighted in the act of uh, foot washing, uh, it doesn't have the same uh, understanding in our, our, our culture today. When we do it today, our culture doesn't understand uh, the, the, the real depth of what foot washing is. We don't have the same uh, practical need. We, walk, we go home and we put on slides specifically for our house, right? Uh, so also, in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5, you will see that Christian widows are shown to be washing the feet of the saint. But in that context, it's not talking about being in the church. It's talking about something happening at the home. So I say all that to say that uh, this is not an ordinance for the church while it is an expression of humility. So why did I just do that? Well, I did it because it emphasizes humility. It doesn't have the same cultural connection for us that it did back in the first century. But the stillness in this room shows how odd it is for a pastor to get down on the ground and touch the toes of another man. But much less, think of the king of kings, Christ the king, humbling himself to do that. Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. To bear the sufferings and the humiliation of the cross. To reconcile an unholy, sin-filled creature to a holy, sinless God. And that Christ who has saved us has called us to serve others. To humble ourselves. To be willing to wash the feet of those who have even less social status than we may have. Now, this does not mean that we have to literally wash the feet of others. And indeed, for you, it's probably not that way to serve others. But it does mean that we are to use whatever gifts that God has given us to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. You don't have to have your feet washed or to wash someone else's feet. The point is that if you know Christ as Lord, you have received the ultimate pinnacle act of service and you've been called to extend service to others even at the cost of your pride. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. In a few moments, we're going to walk through the qualifications of a deacon. The word deacon comes from the Greek diakonos. It means a servant, someone who waits tables. It's literally a waiter. Someone who sees the needs of others and addresses them. As I've tried to showcase this morning... Service is not beneath any of us. We are all called to be servants. But as a gift of God, he's created this formal position, if you would, of deacon within the church. And deacons should be the ones spearheading the service within the church, seeking the good of everyone who's in the household of the faith and preemptively solving conflict and making peace within the body of believers. You can find more detail about the origination and the purpose of deacons in Acts chapter 6. This morning, though, we're going to walk through the qualifications of a deacon 
When we're seeing the qualities that we're to be looking at for those who are to fill this second recognized office of the New Testament church. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at elders or pastors or overseers, whatever word you want to use there. And this week we're looking at deacons. There will be some overlap between the qualifications of an elder and of a deacon. And there will be uh, many of us who will see, I'm not called to fill that office. And that's okay. We can view these virtues as God-honoring and still learn what God-honoring service looks like. As a congregationalist church, we also need to understand what we're looking for in a diaconal candidate when it's brought before the church. So let us begin in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll start in verse 8 and we'll, we'll walk through these together at the qualifications of a servant, the qualifications of a deacon. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So some of what we see in this list will be similar to that of elders or pastors. And some of it will also be fairly self-explanatory as we walk through this. So we will spend some time, more time on some qualities than others. But in this first verse, we're given this four in one qualification. And it's pretty similar to what we looked at with elders. We see here that deacons are to be dignified. That means they're to be respected and respectable. Now, as I mentioned, all of us can learn God-honoring virtues from this list. We should make note here, deacons are not the only ones called to be dignified, okay? Uh, so if you think this text doesn't apply to me, well, deacons aren't the only ones supposed to be dignified. Specifically in Titus 2.2, older men in the church are called to be dignified as well. So, How do we go about being dignified? Well, in this verse, Paul gives Timothy three examples of how not to be dignified. He says deacons are not to be double-tongued. This means that a deacon should be consistent in their speech. They should be trustworthy. And what he tells you will be the same thing that he tells her and me and everyone, that it will be a consistent message. Deacons aren't supposed to be known for their backbiting and their hypocrisy. If deacons are supposed to be keeping peace in the church, they shouldn't be the ones stirring the pot, right? They ought to be trustworthy. Then we read that their dignity is defined by not being addicted to much wine. That is, not given to drink in other translations or not preoccupied by specifically alcohol in this case. As we said when we looked at the elder qualifications that Drunkenness was an ancient blight and it ain't got better today, right? We aren't to be driven by our appetites. If you have a vice that consumes your thought, whether you're a deacon or not, I implore you today to give it up for the glory of God. And I know that that can be difficult. You say, where do I start? Maybe there's even a chemical dependence uh, part of it. What I would say is come to me or someone you trust in the church and we'll support you through it. We'll develop a plan and put it together for accountability and give a strategy to go forward for the glory of God. Church, let's not just talk about qualifications of a deacon. Let's talk about getting better for the glory of God, not to earn our salvation or our righteousness, but because we have received it. Deacons are not to be addicted to wine. That doesn't mean it's good advice for church folks either. 
They're also not supposed to be addicted to money or greedy for dishonest gain, as we see at the end of verse 8 there. That one kind of sits on its own. It's easy to understand. What we should note here is that when you are consumed by either vice, you are proving yourself unworthy of respectability. It's not dignified to be consumed by vice. Deacons in the church are to embrace having high character. This doesn't mean they'll be sinless. doesn't mean that they'll never fall short of the glory of God. We all do. If we say if we have no sin, we make ourselves a liar. But the deacon's life should be marked by being respectable in conduct. Let's look at another qualification in verse 9. It says they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So this is where we see a bit of a deviation from the elder qualifications here. So the elder, it says, must be able to teach. Deacons here, what we can note if you're making little sub notes, deacons must be well taught. Paul uses this word mystery throughout the New Testament epistles to describe something that was once hidden but has now been revealed. So he's talking about God's revealed plan of salvation for Greeks and Jews, barbarians, Scythians, slaves, free. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to save sinners. One pastor wrote, the Old Testament mystery was, how can God forgive these sins? It was answered by Jesus' death as the Father's incarnate and sinless Son suffered the wrath we deserve, thus making forgiveness possible. This is what deacons must understand and must hold on to. Christ Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Indeed, he became sin for them. And if they believe, trusting in his atoning work alone, they shall be saved. In a word, they must understand the mystery of the cross. Deacons don't have to be teachers of the word. But they must know clearly the truth of the gospel and hold tightly to it. Not just hold tightly to that truth, but do so with a clear conscience, it says at the end of the verse. This means... Not only do we understand the gospel, does it even understand the gospel, but the gospel has been impactful upon their life. They live by the gospel. Paul has talked about having a good conscience all throughout chapter 1 of 1 Timothy in this letter to Timothy. As we said when we went through chapter 1, this is a, as we're growing in our affections for God's word, he's going to work through his word to direct our conscience. Waging the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience is done by right belief and right practice. Both are found in and directed by the word of God. So deacons approve their actions by the word of God as should all of us. Let's go to verse 10. Let them be tested first. Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So if you want to make a corollary to the elder qualifications right before this, pastors and elders, it said, should not be recent converts. We shouldn't be too hasty and thrusting these men into the office of pastor or of deacon. 
We're not given an exact time frame. There's not a biblical mandate that says they must attend the church for one year and seven months before we can present them as a deacon. But we're given the idea that we're not to rush into things because when we rush into things, someone may abuse a title when it's given to be a direct service to the church. It's not a position to gain glory, as we'll see later on in the text. It's a position to gain trust because we have served others. We also need to remember this, and this is a really important point, especially if you're thinking, man, I just, well, I'll never be a deacon. I don't fit. We need to remember holding a position, whether it be deacon or pastor, has absolutely zero bearing on our eternal position before God. It is okay to take our time on this. It is okay to give time for testing. It is okay to be slow. I was talking with a group of pastors earlier this week and we were talking about it. It would be better for a church to have no deacons than to thrust people into a position that they're unqualified for. It's okay to weigh these matters out and to take our time. We rush, we implore others on behalf of Christ to be reconciled unto God, not to become a deacon. We should get, uh, we don't want to get analysis by paralysis or paralysis by analysis and never make a decision. But it is good to allow a period of time for someone to show themselves and to be tested for this specific position while we are hastily imploring others to be reconciled unto God. Look at verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So this next set of qualifications pertains to the deacon's wife. And I want to take a bit of a, I don't know if this is a rabbit trail, it's germane to the the verse here. But there there are some who would argue this verse isn't talking about a wife, uh, but rather a, a woman deaconess. Uh, within those who hold that view, some do so because they believe Paul to be a misogynist who needs to be ignored and the Bible ought to catch up with the modern times. This perspective that I just described denies biblical inerrancy and should just be outright rejected. By that, I mean I wouldn't entertain a debate centered around that position. Others holding the view that this is talking about deaconess do so, but they remain in a camp of uh, what we would call conservative biblical interpretation. And uh, we would agree with them that scripture is inerrant and sufficient. So I'm going to give kind of that argument here. So they, they, they would argue the Greek word for wife or wives in this case in the plural also means woman. That is correct. If you look at verses like John chapter 4, verse 27, that is translated as woman. And that is talking about the unmarried woman at the well. There is no way in any shape or form that John 4, 27 is referring to wife. It is clearly woman. So then they would also point to Romans 16, 1, where Phoebe is called a servant or a deaconess. Uh, and they say, It is odd for uh, also that a a deacon's wife will be given specific qualifications while nothing is mentioned about elders' wives in the verses prior to this. People in this specific camp might still even hold or usually do still hold to a complementarian marriage and male eldership in the church. But the view of deacon or servant is viewed as open to men and women as long as deacons are purely serving and not in a hybrid deacon-elder role. 
I have dear friends in this camp that I have some great and charitable conversations with. However, while I will still call them my friend, I, I believe that this is an incorrect interpretation. So I'm going to give you the basis for that. In addition to God's created order being reflected in the church, we discussed that just a few weeks ago. Even the simple structure of the paragraph that we are looking at this morning does not lend itself to be talking about a deaconess. Why? Well, it might be strange that deacons' wives are mentioned while the elders' wives are not. But it would be even stranger, if you look at this as the paragraph that it is, that in this list for male deacons, it would go male deacons, female deacons, and then back to males. In verses uh, right before it, and then uh, verse 11 would be talking about female deacons, and then verse 12 goes right back to specifically male deacons. Like, it would be a very illogical way to lay it out. Furthermore, when we get to verse 8 that we looked at a moment ago, Paul used the word likewise to distinguish deacons as a group that is like an elder, but not the same. It is distinct from uh, the group of elders. So thus, likewise in this verse is talking about a group that is related to deacons, but it's not the exact same thing. Lastly, in the very next verse, in, in verse 312, that we'll get to in just a moment, the word is unarguably translated as wife. The same word. It is in context, definitely talking about wife with no variation. So after considering all of the context around this and as well as the created order reflected in the church, it is my belief that the position of the church uh, goes along with, as we have discussed in many meetings, to elect male deacons. So here in verse 12, Paul is telling Timothy that a deacon's wife, I'm sorry, verse 11, I, I, that was my fault, brother. In verse 11, Paul is telling uh, Timothy that a deacon's wife ought to be dignified and respectable just like the husband. As one flesh, they should be war walking together, working together. The husband and wife reflect on one another. The wife of a deacon must be worthy of respect. That is the dignified that goes right along with the same pattern as verse uh, eight. The, uh, uh, they are also sober minded, not addicted to much wine and faithful in all things. The wife of a deacon is worthy of respect, refraining from gossip, remaining clear minded and dependable. Let's go to verse 12. Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife. That's the same word that I was talking about a moment ago. Managing their children and their household well. So this qualification goes hand in hand uh, with the elders qualifications that we looked at a few weeks ago. The deacon, like an elder, must be faithful to his wife in a monogamous relationship to Write it out as, well, one woman man prohibits promiscuity and homosexuality. A deacon must have a clear and consistent pattern of honor and love and devotion to his wife and his wife alone. The deacon, likewise, manages his household well. That means that these things are a reflection uh, upon the deacon. This doesn't mean that everything is always perfect or that even all of the children within the house will become necessarily believing Christians. Rather, a faithful deacon will be one who leads his home well, disciplines his children within uh, uh, good reason without being overbearing, and, and that his attention to detail and discipline will be reflected in some degree in his children's behavior. Something that we majorly overlook 
in the church as a whole, for everyone, whether it be pastor, deacon, family of any sort, the home is the forefront of ministry. It's the first place where ministry begins. We talked this morning about our missional relationships all over the, the country, we have, or all over the world. We have two uh, missionaries in Brazil that we directly support, one uh, in a Middle Eastern country. We're a part of the cooperative program. Missions are great. We're going to go to Elkhorn City most likely this uh, summer. Those are all great. But before we get caught up in going on missions, we need to keep our house in order. We need to minister to our families and share the grace and truth of God unashamedly in our own households. I said that on day one, I believe, uh, when I, I came to Durban three and a half years ago, whatever it was, I said, my first front of ministry has to be my own home. And that's how the biblical mandates for or uh, qualifications of elder lay out. And that's how we should all uh, uh, be as well. Let's look at verse 13. For those who serve as deacons gain in a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Here, Paul is emphasizing that those who faithfully fulfill their role as deacon not only earn a commendable reputation within the church community, but cultivate a deepened confidence in their faith in Christ. Through their steadfast service, their, their commitment to righteousness, deacons exemplify the virtues that are uh, uh, essential for effective ministry and spiritual leadership Embodying a, a profound expression of faith that inspires others to follow suit. They lead well through service in the church. The ESV commentary notes that the term rendered competence there on the third line, if you're looking at the screen with us, denotes freedom and boldness to speak. It's like Stephen in his heroic martyrdom in Acts 6 and 7, 1 through 53. Deacons may find that their service affords them opportunities to bear witness. Such faithful service leads to a greater standing and confidence to speak about Christ and his gospel for greater service reflects an increasing faith in Christ Jesus. So let's bring all this together as we wrap up this morning. Deacons are servants called to lead and serving in the church. They are to be proactively seeking peace and unity in the church. They should be respected and respectable, holding tight to the gospel in both belief and practice, tested and strong and supported by respectable wives, children, and managed households. As we've seen in verse 13, it is good to have good deacons. All of us, should be aware of these qualifications that God has laid out for deacons in his church. Deacons live up to the calling that God has placed on your life. Be proactive, deacons of Durban Memorial Baptist Church, in serving, in keeping peace in the church. We love, we trust, we respect you. Keep going for the glory of God. It is good to glorify God through faithful service to his church but it's likely for a lot of us listening this morning that many of us won't become deacons. That may not be the role that God has designed you to have in his kingdom. That's okay. That is okay. Whether you are formally called to be a deacon or not, you have been called to serve. We ought not to let a title or a position decide how we practice our faith. 
We all ought to desire to serve others well for the glory of God. Church, why are we here this morning? Why did we get up and drive all the way to our little corner of Clay's Ferry this morning? Did we do it because all of us are supposed to be pastors? Did we do it so that all of us can be called deacons and feel better about ourselves because we've been given some title? I sure hope not. I hope that we are here this morning to honor, to praise, and to grow in our knowledge of our Lord and Savior who stepped out of heaven to serve us. Jesus doesn't just wash our feet, but by grace through faith on the cross, he has washed us of our sins and reconciled us to a holy God. We have been enabled to serve God and to truly serve others because Christ first served us. Church, may we cherish the honor to serve one another and do good to everyone, especially those in the household of the faith. May we live each moment in reflection of the grace we have received, seeking to share that grace with others. That doesn't mean we have to wash other people's feet. But it does mean stewarding the gifts God has given us by compassionately serving others at their point of need. Core value number four. Not only to meet their physical needs, but to tell them of their spiritual needs and how Christ is the only answer. The heart of the gospel message is that salvation comes through grace received by faith in Jesus Christ, accompanied by genuine repentance from sin. God, in his infinite love and mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to redeem all those who believe in him from the power and consequence of sin. Jesus lived that sinless life, that perfect diaconal life that we could never accomplish on our own. He lived that perfect life and died on the cross is the perfect sacrifice for our sins and rose on the third day conquering sin and death through his sacrifice we are offered forgiveness reconciliation with God and eternal life what more could we ask for this gift of salvation can't be earned through our own good efforts not even by touching another man's toes it's freely given by God's grace and God's grace alone, made known to us by Jesus Christ on the cross. All that's required to us is believe in Jesus and you shall be saved. He is Savior. He is Lord. We acknowledge, we hear that call of the Holy Spirit to see that we need to be forgiven and He is the only forgiver. We surrender our lives to His Lordship because Jesus Christ is Lord. Turn away from your sins. Desire to live obediently to God's word because his word is better. As we trust in Jesus and turn from our sinful ways, we're born again by the grace of God, adopted into God's family, powered by the Holy Spirit to live a life that honors Jesus Christ, that honors God. This is the essence of the gospel. If you didn't hear anything else this morning, hear this. Salvation from our sins comes by grace, through faith, 
in Jesus Christ. We repent of our sins and turn to Jesus Christ, which leads us by his Holy Spirit to a transformed life and an eternal relationship with Christ. In this, we're enabled to serve. Will you join me in serving today, deacon or not? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to view your word. I pray that it has been addressed properly, explained correctly, and received with grace and truth. Lord, I pray that we would honor you in all that we do, that we would seek to serve you well and to serve others as a fruits of the grace we have received from you. Lord, I thank you for Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again to pay the cost of our sins. I pray everyone in here today knows that message to be true, that we would seek to live that out and share it with others, that we would hear the Holy Spirit calling us home even today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're willing and able, would you- Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org. Have a wonderful day and God bless.